0: Way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough or even if they don't. Today is August the thirtieth, two thousand eighteen, and this is episode twenty two eighty two of the Survival Podcast. And as a Thursday, you know what it's time for: listener calls Q and got a bunch of stuff up on the line for us today. Uh, two of them are kind of similar, but really, there's a lot of variety here. We have a question on using a cast iron bathtub in an aquaponic system. We have another jack your jerk call. We have thoughts on a five G wireless replacing dsl and cable internet and other modes of internet and the caller is asking the question as though i guess it's more like a now thing uh i'm going to explain how it's an eventual thing and it's probably exactly the case uh it's probably exactly where we're headed It, it well we'll save it till we get there um a listener reports back on a tsp recommended tire plug kit it's been an item of the day several times and uh I think it's good that when, you know, some of the stuff I recommend is just good lifestyle stuff. It's for cooking in your kitchen. You know, some of it's hardcore. This is for your preps, and this is for preps you're probably going to need sooner or later. And when people actually use them and they work, I think it's a good thing to hear from them. I have a question on aquaponics. In an, uh, I'm sorry, aquaponics. A question on bullfrogs in an aquaponics system. I have a little tiny bit of experience with that by accident, I guess you'd say. Uh living life on a well, what precautions should you take when you have a well? And you know there's going to be a, it depends there. And then on the water thing again, question on choosing between a reverse osmosis water filtration system and something like a Berkey filter and dealing with large families and limited counter space and stuff uh, with the Berkey. So I'll have all of that and more in just a moment for you. Before we get into it, let's go ahead and take a look at a year in history. David Verne has a segment queued up for us today in the year 151 A.D., and this is a good segment. This is one of those segments that you usually skip the history segment. I think, you'll, I think you'll dig this one because it shows how little things have really changed. Roman lawsuits, another form of entertainment contributed by David Verne. Just like modern Americans, the Romans sued the crap out of each other. By the time of the Empire, trials were completely run by the state. They would start when a plaintiff logged a complaint with the court, and the court official would serve the defendant with a summons. The official had the ability to arrest the defendant if they failed to appear. The court magistrate had complete control over the case, admitting whatever evidence he wanted in being able to make the final ruling. Documented evidence could not be beaten by oral testimony. The defendant had a right of appeals, and Roman citizens had a right to appeal for the emperor to judge the case trials would begin in the early morning and were held in the open and on non-holidays meaning no games were held in the arenas trials were a favorite form of entertainment for the roman masses lawyers used this entertainment factor to their advantage and even held had fans who would cheer at every comment and boo the opposing attorney some lawyers even kept these fan clubs on retainer to ensure that they had a friendly audience Every trick in the book was used to pander to the crowd, including one lawyer bringing the infant son of a client to a trial and asking the audience if they really wanted to separate this cute baby from his father. My Take by David Verne, who puts these together for us at TSP Wiki. Even though every society is different, some things are universal, and interest in trials is one of these. Any search for court shows gives a list stretching back to the 1930s, when radio shows hadn't yet replaced the TV. The O.J. Simpson trial was one of the most watched television events in history, with an estimated 95 to 105 million viewers turning in, about the same as the 2010 Super Bowl. Wow, and that's a lot of years in between, too, there, right? Um, so here's a couple thoughts on this. Number one, doesn't the way the courtrooms ran in in ancient Rome with crowds cheering and but bo- if you ever saw the movie Idiocracy, is that not exactly what you saw in your head when not sure, right? ends up on trial and his own lawyers like, "This guy broke my house and, and some other things. And the way that the trial is handled, the way that the judge is and did it just like make you see that? And don't you go, gee, we're the only thing that really separates us from that today, is people have to keep their holes shut in the courtroom. That's that's probably the reason why. Um, There's a couple things here also that kind of stick out for me. So It seems that trials for lawsuits were the big entertainment. Could it be? I don't know. I'm not that huge of a student of Roman history. I know most of what I know about Roman history at this point from the segments from David Verne. Could it be that there were just not as many uh, criminal trials? That you know, when you were guilty of something, they just whacked you. But also, the state kind of stayed out of people's business a lot more, even though it was an empire. I, I think, from my understanding of, of Roman history at this point, and 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 the stuff we studied moving forward from about the year fourteen hundred, I think it was with Alex shrugged, um, all the way up to modern times. That there was there is some level of that 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 uh, in some ways the average citizen in Rome was left alone more and molested less. By the tyrannical empire, emperor, I'm sorry, than we are today by our supposed, you know, republic. And of course, Rome was a republic. Anyway, with that, let's move on and uh, get into your calls for me today. Um, I want to reiterate, there's a call I'm going to take, I don't remember which one it is now, but from a Jason and... Jason, when you hear your call, know that you made another call, and unless it was the same call, repeated, I don't know what your first call was. Because I got your name and where you were from, and it's clearly the same guy and the same caller ID, but I, it just died on that note. So when you call, make sure you have some good bars on your phone. Make sure you have some good signal. Make sure you call from a quiet area, et cetera. Cause you, you know, you just cut right, you're talking, and then boom, you're like, I'm from Jason Tennessee, and... the and that was it. It was like one little like 10 seconds later, like a uh-uh, and then the rest of the call was dead silent. Probably had bad signal. Not sure, but probably had bad signal. All right, first question we have today is on cast iron bathtubs and an aquaponics system. Hey, Jack, this is Elliot in Virginia. I uh, acquired an old call cast iron tub, and I'm putting together an aquaponics system. And I was wondering if you think that would work better as your tank battery. Or would it serve better as a wicking bed? Little details. As I said, I was gathering materials for an aquaponics system. I ran across one of these tubs, and I was just going to put flowers in it. But as I was doing that and filling it with dirt, I thought to myself, self, this already has a bulkhead. Would you think it would work better as a fish tank or work better as either one of your wicking beds or tub flood and drain beds? Thanks a lot for all you do. Well, there's going to be, and it depends here. I mean, there's just no way around it, right? So let me talk about a few different things here. Let's let's get a a fundamental understanding of the the the, the item in question when full of water. Uh, based on my calculations, depending on how deep this tub is, and some of the old clawfoot tubs are really deep, you you would have water capacity of somewhere between 80 and 110 gallons. All right, let's say that it's 80 gallons. It's the the, the low end, 80 gallons, 8 times 8.3, plus about 400 pounds, because that's probably about how much the thing weighs. These cast iron tubs weigh about 400 pounds. You're looking a little over 1,000 pounds if that thing's full of water. That's a half a ton. It's not that you can't build something to hold it up and suspend it, it's that it has to be really sturdy. Again, you're talking about a 1,000 pounds. and you're, the, I think one of the important things to understand when you're talking about, especially an ebb and flow bed, you're talking about a dynamic versus a static load. So what do I mean by that? I mean that the weight changes back and forth, back and forth. If you have a 400-pound tub full of, let's say, lava rock, you probably have about uh, 200 pounds of rock in there, so you have something that weighs about 600 pounds. Uh, now you're probably going to be on the order of about 60 gallons of water fitting in the tub. Let's say uh, let's say 65 gallons, and times 8.3 five foot 39. Call it 540 pounds. 540 pounds, and you've got 600 pounds. And you're jacking 540 pounds into it and then jacking 540 pounds out of it. So you're going like 600 up to 1140 slowly and then rapidly back down to 600 and then slowly back up to 1140. You're doing this over and over and over if you do an ebb and flow bed with it. And you're doing that on a cycle of about, what, uh, five times an hour. Now, that doesn't mean not to do it it doesn't mean that you can't do it it does mean that you need to be using heavy lumber that any kind of supports need to be very well constructed and that you you need to be using things like you know structural wood screws or galvanized spikes or something like that or uh lag bolts or something that has, and you need to do the math, and make sure that, based on how the low's distributed, that whatever you use has the bearing capacity for the weight. Now, this is not a ridiculous amount of weight. It really isn't if you compare it to something like a deck built on the side of a house. However, that deck built on the side of the house is going to distribute a lot more weight over a much greater area. You're going to have to concentrate this into a relatively small stand. That's what I think of when I think about doing this thing as an ebb and flow bed. You've got to get it above your sump. Now, if you're going to use something like um, a 300-gallon Rubbermaid tub as your sump, and you're going to bury it you know, almost all the way into the ground, then you don't really have that problem, do you? Well, now you can sit the damn thing on the ground, and I would definitely put some sort of like pavers or something underneath the feet to, to spread that out so it doesn't sink into the ground which is another thing you have to think about right? and exactly how you're going to do that and reinforce that because if you put it on soft ground, it will just ooze into the ground and you may never get it out. Um, that would be another thing you could do. Then, then, then the sky is the limit. As a wicking bed, I think it would look really cool. I think it would look really neat as a wicking bed. And with a wicking bed as another part of your system instead of just your system, um, you have some options there. You could plumb that thing so that it's not necessary to worry about a return. So it doesn't matter that it's at the same level or even lower than your sump, if that ends up being the case for some reason due to the terrain. And what I mean by that is you could simply... You go ahead and, and fill the bottom of it with a false bottom, you know, using lava rock, or take a look at the video I just put out. I used uh, perforated pipe as a false bottom that lava rock's gonna go on top of in the system I'm working on right now. And uh, put your layer of weed blocker down and, and everything. But when you do that, you put a media excluder in first, like say a four inch or six inch piece of pipe, and put a delivery side line down in there with a float valve and make a static wicking bed. So instead of water flowing through it, water just simply flows to it. You tie it to the pressure that comes off of your pump, and as that bed uses water, it just gets replaced. It won't add to the filtration of your system, but it'll work flawlessly, it's probably the easiest way to use this as an element within an aquaponic system. As a sump, I think it'd be like a cool-looking fish tank. I really do. But it's, you know, it's 100 gallons. So depending on the total size of your system, you know, it may not be as big as you'd want. And just the way bathtubs are designed, it, it kind of lends itself to fish launching themselves out of the tub. Now, by putting a cap rail around your tub, which I recommend most tanks have. If you look at all my tanks, they tend to have some sort of an overhang. So if the fish comes up out, because fish generally don't jump from the center. What they do is they come up the side of a tank and they jump. So if there's a ledge there, they jump they hit the ledge, they go back in. And that's why I don't have a lot of fish, you know, 86 in the AO, even though I don't have nets over any of my tanks. Because that lip is there that knocks them back. I'm like, oh, okay, that hurts. I don't want to do that again. So I don't know how that would affect the look. But it just seems like if you think about, like, the, the foot side of a bathtub, the, the side that the, uh, the, the faucet doesn't come into. Um, actually, I guess that's the back side of a bathtub. I don't spend a lot of time in tubs. Uh, the backside where you would lean back and put your feet down by where the faucet is. That has that, that slope to it generally, and that just seems like a fish catapult. So it, it might be something you'd have to think about there. So with all of that considered, I'd say probably for me, I would look at some sort of a wicking bed as my first choice, a probably a sump fish tank sort of thing as my second, and probably ebb and flow as my last. And unless you can tell me that you have terrain to work with. You have terrain to work with where you can elevate the tub without having to make a major construction project out of it. Now I love the tub as an ebb and flow bed. I absolutely love it. And one way that you could do um, an elevated type situation that would be pretty easy with that tub would be simply to build something that looks like a retaining wall, kind of a, a mini Miyagi, if you've seen my timber frame pond, and then just fill it with with you know, whatever kind of cheap fill you can get and get sit on that. And then you don't have any real problems with it collapsing, and you might be able to look make that look really cool, and you might be able to come up with some other accoutrements that could be done with that. So that would be another option. So if you have some easy way to elevate it above your sump, then, or if you're going to bury your sump so that that becomes easy, then I'm going to flip it around and say I would prefer it as an ebb and flow first, and a wicking bed second, and then actually a fish tank third. So it depends, and I've tried to cover all my bases of the of the depends there. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and take another call. Chad, you're a jerk. Not only did your podcast inspire me to make some simple apple cider from apple juice that turned out really good, and I got compliments from it, also, the power went out last night at my house, and because of you, I was prepared to power my house temporarily. Unfortunately, power came back on in an hour, so I was disappointed I wasn't able to use more of my preps, but you're just a jerk. Goodbye. <laughs> i have to tell you, it's some of my favorite things in the world to get these Jack, you're a jerk calls and emails. Uh, and I actually think, like, if you have a Jack, you're a jerk story, they make better calls than emails. Because to hear somebody say, Jack, you're a jerk, because of you, I paid off my debt. Or Jack, you're a jerk, because of you, I was ready for a blackout. Or Jack, you're a jerk, because of you, I learned how to make apple cider. And whatever it is, you know, it just, it just sounds funnier. And for those that are maybe new to the show, this stems from way back. Way back when I'm like in like my first season of doing this show, all the way back in 2008 and 2009. And I would talk about debt and things like that. I would say, you're never going to call me and say, Jack, you're a jerk. I'm out of debt because of you. And now I have all this stupid money laying around and don't know what to do with it. And it took about four or five years. And then all of a sudden, people started to actually do it. And it, it, it it's kind of snowballed as of late. There's a bit more of them. If you have a, a Jack, you're a jerk call, I, I I would love to hear it. Call me, 866 866- 65 think 866 65 think and tell me why I'm a jerk. Uh and you can tell me why I'm a jerk like this where it's actually humorous and what you mean is because of you I was prepared etc and you can mean it sarcastically or hell if you want to tell me I'm a jerk cuz you don't like me you can call me with that too I might even put it on the air I don't know if you'll appreciate my response but hey you know I'm I'm open to all opinions uh and I'll save my thoughts on opinions for later that's part of a project we're working on anyway um so the only thing I actually wanted to add to this call is the concept of, damn it, the lights came back on too fast. Um, the more prepared you are for a blackout, the more you kind of have that feeling. Has anybody had that feeling, you're like, well, it's going to last a couple more hours. Especially, you're like, I don't have kids anymore, right? But when we had we had our son in the house as a youngster, and the power would go out, and it would kind of force that kind of old family feeling. And like power would come on, you're like, damn it. And it was funny that, like... There were times when they did come back on. we like, okay, well, that's great. We don't have to worry about the refrigerator or whatever. And now the air conditioning's running, or now the heater's running. But let's just kind of stay in this mode for the rest of the evening. And the family choosing to do that. I've always, I've always thought that was cool. And I'll tell you, the kind of the first place. To begin your preparedness journey, other than the very basics that we teach with, you know, a, a certain amount of food and a bug out bag and a plan, you know, a plan and a list is, is easy and should be done immediately. Um, and saving money and get out of debt. Kind of the place to begin with the stuff uh, is really the blackout kit. Well, I talk about bug out kits, but a blackout kit is far more likely to be used. And that's just all the stuff you need when the power goes out to, to deal with it. And you, most of you probably have flashlights and batteries, but like there's a flashlight there, there's a flashlight there, there's a lantern here. Getting it all into one place and knowing where it is, and having maybe some emergency uh, lighting, a little, little nightlight-style ones that plug into the wall, so that when the lights go out, you can at least find your way to your kit, and kind of starting there, and then building up to maybe a Harris battery bank or a good generator system and extension cords and all. You get that done, and... All you do then, if you have a reluctant spouse, is go, please let the power go out. Please let the power go out. Please let the power go out. Please, like you get a storm, you're like, come on, go out go out where you used to be like oh man i overpowered and i don't want to lose power like because the power goes out and then it's like oh damn it and then you're like oh no way, i have this and i have that and here's a light over here and you can go there and let's throw a couple logs in the fireplace this winter time we light that up and go outside and boom, little generators on hmm extension cord and run the small tv and turn it on and watch the news see what's going on with the weather and all of a sudden you're a freaking hero And then when you're like, hey, you know, I think we need to be more prepared for X or Y or Z, all of a sudden it's like, well, tell me more. Because people see the concrete results. So I'd I'd just love to hear from any of you that have ever had the power go out after you're prepared for it and then been like, damn, it came back on so fast. About the only thing I worry about, and I still have to get more pack-up power into places, all these damn aquaponic systems I've been building. Because uh, if the pumps are off too long, then you end up with dead fish and things like that. And I'm I'm starting to implement that. But once that's done, I go out for a day. I don't care. You know, I, I just don't want to have to push a generator around from one place to another, which is kind of what I would have to do right now, run this one for a while, then that one for a while. Uh, once we get past that, man, go out for a couple of days for all I care. It's... It's especially in the fall the winter the spring it's the dad gone summers around here because then you're running window unit air conditioners and sequestering yourself off to one or two rooms but other than that it, it's interesting when you get prepared you don't want catastrophe but the little disasters actually stop becoming annoyances and they become opportunities i'd love to hear your experience and thoughts on that and i'd love to hear you call me a jerk so eight six six sixty five 65 think and Tell me why I'm a jerky in your life. Next, we have a question on 5G Internet. Hey, Jack. Daniel here. My question had to do follow-up on the 5G technology. I heard on a podcast recently about using 5G as an alternative to Internet and using basically phone data plans and pulling multiple data plans from multiple carriers to get um, services. I was curious if you had any experience on that or thoughts of using that versus traditional Internet. Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, let's start out with this is a not quite yet thing. And then I also don't know that you're fully understanding it as to what it's like. I think it's part of the issue that the capability of 5G is so beyond anything we've seen with anything other than, let's say, like point to point WiMAX, which most people are going, what? WiMAX is the great technology that never made it. <laughs> uh, but unless you're on like two point to point transmitters uh, with line of sight beaming from one point to another, something like that. And there's some point-to-point Internet services that do work like that. Um, Nothing's even close. Nothing's even close. Uh, You're talking about a, a target capability of 20 gigabits per second to the user. And an achievable average across the coverage area of a gigabit connection a gigabit connection, and in this world, we are so overwhelmed with big numbers, we, we don't really understand what that means, but, you know, your your average cable, uh, cable modem right now, like I'm on right now, in fact, instead of saying average, let me tell you what my cable modem is really doing for me right now, so I'm supposed to have up to 100 megabits with Comcast, and right now I'm getting 68, 68 megabit download speed, and you know what, it's plenty. There's nothing I want to do that if there's anything that's slow. Uh, I can sit in here and do a Skype call for an interview while my, uh, while my granddaughter's out, uh, watching a bunch of stupid music videos about baby sharks on YouTube. Um, and it doesn't bother anything. I, you know, until we have, you know, 50 people here pounding my modem during a workshop, my internet never blinks. And it's probably averaging about 60 to 70 megabits in spite of the fact they say 100. And you can bet when this 5G thing becomes the thing that it's going to become, they'll talk about 20 gigabits all the time because it sounds better than one. But having an achievable, which means aggregate average per user at any given time, will have a gigabit connection in their pocket if they have a phone on a, a 5G network is equivalent to 10 Cable modem connections on their best day, in one. So you won't be tying multiples together. There's no, it's it becomes irrelevant as far as using it for internet access. Believe it or not, the the I guess largest carrier, Verizon, is either the largest or second largest carrier in the United States between them and AT and T. Um, only only plans to initially use it for home Internet services and to go compete with the companies that have fiber and cable, et cetera, to the premise uh, and be able to offer faster speeds for less money because they don't have the same type. They have infrastructure to, to, to maintain, but not the same type. It's much more of a centralized infrastructure type situation. Um, I think it's AT&T that says that they will have 5G in 12 cities by the end of this year. So this is an emerging technology that's going to transform the world forever. It is going to enable all of the stuff that we've been talking about, self-driving cars, when you have 5G become a reality. They have so little latency and so much capacity. And this is one of these these uh, leaps that are exponential in nature. Usually, we have like, you know, the doubling, the doubling, the doubling, right? The Moore's Law, computing power doubles about every two years, is is what they really say. And even though it wasn't about things like uh, data throughput capacity, it's kind of followed at pretty, like all technologies in this kind of space have kind of followed Moore's Law fairly well. Well, this is like an exponential jump. This jump is as big. Is when you went from you've got mail. When you went from that to your first DSL connection or your first cable modem connection, the difference between dial up and that first, you know, real internet connection where you could actually, you know, you clicked on a picture and just loaded, it didn't like slowly load. You could watch a video and it actually played. It's that big of a jump, but look how high we already are before this next jump. And what, is, what this is going to lead to is primarily the death of the conventional Internet connection over the next 10 years. Now, that doesn't mean all the companies in this business are going to go out of business. They're going to switch to this technology. Except for the companies like Comcast and all that have the cables on the ground, they're probably going to end up doing both. And there's probably going to be a long lag between people really trusting this new technology. You also have to understand it's not really what you would call backwards compatible with hardware. Now, it's true that if you had a 5G connection to your house, wireless, and then you had a modem plugged into it, well, your computer's going to work with it just fine. But if you have a gigabit coming in, and uh, you know and you have a, a, a modem with a gigabit port on it, and you plug into that, or you have a gigabit capability, you, you, it'll work. But your wireless connectivity to it is now slower than the backbone. It's, it, you see, it's flipped. It, this is hard to get your head around if you're a network, because you're, it's, it's backwards. It, it, it's almost always the case that you, you, you you're you're in home networking anyway. Your bottleneck is the backbone. So I don't care that you have, you know, back in the days of fast Ethernet, you have a 100 megabits to each device off of your modem that you had manually plugged a cable into. If if you had a a 1.45 connection on the other side of it, that's all you got. You get your first DSL. So you had more speed in the house than you had on the backbone from the house. Now you're flipping that around. Then the other thing is your iPhone that you're walking around with right now will be able to connect to a 5G network, but not at 5G. It will connect at LTE or 4G. If you want to use your device to access that level of speed, you're going to need a 5G-capable phone. None exist yet. I think Android's going to be first. So you see there's like a lag in tech to catch up with how much this will do. So the wired companies are going to be around for a while with wired technologies because, frankly, I mean, I look at it this way. It works. I have it. My, my stuff's plugged in right now. It functions. Uh, I also have a cable. So I'm paying very little for the Internet connection. Mostly, what we pay for is the cable to the TVs. But as other technologies, cable's taking a beating, too. Because everything's becoming subscribable, so you subscribe only to what you want. You pick and choose. You don't pay for 200 channels and only watch five of them, which is what a lot of people do. It's what we do, just because it keeps everybody happy. But that is the kind of transformation that's coming. So what you're really seeing in 5G is if you can have a gigabit to your house, either through a mobile device like your phone or through a little box, because that's what you're really going to have. You're going to have a little box sits in your house. You can have a gigabit through that box. And you can get it for the same price or less than you're paying for 100 megabits. And once it, it's it it just as reliable, wouldn't you do it? And this is why you have this differing approach. AT&T wants to market phones. And you're going to have this amazing speed to your phone and be mobile. Verizon realizes that there's a tremendous advantage in a static component to a new emerging network. And what I mean by that is, the most complicated part of cellular technology is the handoff. You're in your car, you're driving down the road, your phone is pinging a tower. Now, you're getting to the edge of that tower's coverage, and the pickup of another tower's coverage. And if those two towers don't overlap somewhat and covers like a Venn diagram, you have a dead zone in between. That's when you see you're driving down the road, you signal weak, 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 gone. Drive, 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 signal, come back. There's a dead zone. But what usually happens with modern networks, we've got so much coverage now in most areas instead are of way out in the sticks, you have a seamless handoff. You have no idea the work inside the network to make that happen for thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people. It is the entire – the company I used to, 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 to run, and Optimization Services, I used to run that with Neil Franklin – Handoffs were the only reason that company existed, because that's how complicated they are in all of these technologies. So what Verizon's strategy is, we'll put it in houses first. We'll go in all the underserved or overpriced Internet markets, and we'll pay for the infrastructure with it. And we'll be able to test and develop and roll out this technology knowing that Bob's Internet thing is going to be on this tower all the time on this side of the house pointing that way. AT&T wants to be able to say they have it throughout their network quicker, so they're doing a 12-city rollout, and then they're going to build the infrastructure off of that. So this is a coming technology that's going to, to change things like you can't imagine. It will be as big a change as high-speed Internet was in the late 90s. And if you think about the Internet before and after high-speed Internet, and then 10 years of that, and and, and all of the things that like, – if you didn't get high-speed internet, you don't have Netflix. Netflix is still sending you DVDs in the mail. That's how Netflix started out for your younger folks. You got two DVDs at a time, and when you send them back, they send you two new ones. And my son, as young as he is, he's only twenty-nine. You know, what he used to do when that started out. He'd get every movie, and he'd make he'd burn copies of them and sell them at work for five bucks a piece. And so it's, he used Netflix. Like you, you couldn't even do that kind of pirating business today. No one would care. You just get Netflix for 10 bucks a month, or whatever it is, 12 bucks a month, and you're done. And you, you get all the movies you want that Netflix has. That, that's that kind of a change is what we're looking at here. And so some of that change was evident what was going to happen. And some of it, like, when it happened, you're like, oh, clearly that was a, a, a thing that would happen. That makes perfect sense. Like any single person that wants to be able to stream live video over websites like YouTube and Facebook. Oh, yeah, that makes perfect sense. But when we first got high-speed Internet, nobody really saw that that was going to be a thing. The, the, the people that we would call poor people would have that capability. This is the mega juggernaut that everything else that we talk about in the coming days is going to revolve around because it is the movement of data and information and in signal. That's how big it is. And I know it's kind of a tech 10 minutes there, but guys, you, you should pay attention to this because it's going to alter your world. Jack, this is Bob and Lano. And I thought I would offer a little testimonial on the tire plug kit you were uh, uh, having as your featured item. I uh, was listening to episode 2270. And uh, I had uh, heard you made this make this comment earlier about having a tire plug kit. Uh, last summer, while we were moving, uh, I got a nail in my tire on my truck. And I got the kit, went and got one, and I plugged the tire. Yeah. And this was in June in Texas in the heat. And it worked fabulously, uh, aired it right up with my compressor at home, and ran that plug for the better part of nine months. I finally was able to replace those back tires um, like in April of this year, and it never lost a single pound of air. That plug worked fabulously. Consequently, I have one in each of my vehicles now. I won't leave home without them. So thank you. This is just my little testimonial. Thanks for everything you do. Talk to you later. Bye. So kinda of my little addition here, somebody reached out to me because I've really beat up on the tire repair shops and the tire more sales shops than repair shops. Uh you know, your firestones and whatnot, uh tire and battery, I can't North American tire and battery, whatever it is. Um, With the fact that they'll basically lie to a customer and say this tire can't be fixed, when in general, most tires can be fixed. It really is not a good idea to plug a sidewall of a tire, but you can patch the sidewall and you can plug the tread from from one edge of the tread to the other edge of the tread with no concerns or problems whatsoever. And they do last, and they last as long as the frickin' tire does. And then the other thing is, so if a plug fails... And as long as it's not a sidewall, if a plug fails, so what? You're back to having a flat tire. And somebody reached out to me and said, Jack, you don't understand what's really going on. It's not that we're lying. Well, we are, but we don't mean to. We have to. We have to lie because the insurance companies... And what it is, is if the, say a guy comes in, he says he's got a flat tire, we find a nail in his tire, we give him his options, he said, yeah, plug it for 15 bucks instead of buying a new tire or whatever. And uh, so we just air it up, we ream out the hole, we pop a plug in there, we trim it off, and we send him on his way, and everything is great. If he has a wreck, and he comes back and he sues us and says, you should have never done that, you should never put that plug in there. If they can create... First of all, no matter what, our insurance company won't cover us for that claim. We're on our own. We have to defend ourselves. We have no insurance capability whatsoever in that claim. And then it's, you know, the onus is on them, obviously, to prove that the plug is why, but it's a liability we don't want. Okay, fine. Sure. I'll buy that. But why do you think that's the case? Do you really think insurance companies are like. Yeah, we're just so overrun with these non-existent claims that a plug got somebody killed in Iraq that we need to do this to protect ourselves. No, this is this is corporatism at its finest. By finest, I mean its worst. This is the this is collusion between which is illegal, but it happens every day anyway between two different companies or two different industry sectors to make a standardized decision for everybody's benefit. Pretty easy sale to the, the insurance companies. Look. It doesn't cost you anything to do this, it doesn't hurt you to do this, and it reduces your liability. Well, who's going to make that that sales pitch to them? Firestone, Goodyear, Yokohama, you understand. They want to sell tires. And every business that sells any kind of a consumable product, whether it's quick consumable or long-term consumable, any kind of non-durable, eventually wearing out product, has this concern. If people don't use up our product fast enough and buy more, we can't keep growing our business and growing to a larger and larger you know, amount of business. Because companies today cannot come out and say, well, we're doing really great, but we did 10% less than last year. And the only reason we did it is our product is so good that the people that have it don't need another one. The market punishes you for that type of success, even if you made billions of dollars and did a fair return to your shareholders. doesn't matter. You have to have growth at all all costs in today's market, so much so that when I worked for Microtest, before Fluke bought us and disassembled us and integrated a few of us into their own, we had a big kind of uh, like a field day. in school. Remember kids when you had a field day in school? Like you did a little events and stuff like that, and you ran, and you did long jumps and stuff. Well, we had like a a team-building event for the whole company. And uh, what it was was Tester Smashing Day. And we had all these different things, like how far can you throw the tester, you know, put the tester on a thing and hit it with a like a thing that rings a bell, except it hurled the tester up against the wall. And who could hit the highest point on the wall with the tester with like a a teeter-totter and a hammer? And it was our old testers and competitors' old testers. And these were all pieces of test equipment, most of which worked flawlessly. That were prior generations that had been traded into us on a rebate program to buy new testers. Well, why the hell would we do that? We could have sold all those testers for more than we gave for them because we gave a fictitious amount of money that didn't exist. We came out with new product. We priced it higher than it was going to end up at. We discounted it for the rebate plan to launch it, and then a couple of months later we just kind of reduced the price down to the target price in the first place. So why why wouldn't we just take all that shit and see it as a win because we wanted it off the street. It's like a gun back buyback program from the government, except it's being done for commercial reasons instead of for virtue signaling. And every company does this. They do, you know, when they do trade ins and stuff like that, they they get rid of the product they take back if it competes with their new product. Now, cars don't do this because you have very different market segments. The guy that buys the used car with 110,000 miles on it is not going to buy your brand new $40,000 car anyway. So cars are kind of the exception to that, but almost everywhere else, This is what happens. You have this desire to get the old product gone. And this is what the tire companies are doing. They don't care that you could plug that tire and drive it for another 20,000 miles. If you multiply that by the millions of times it happens a year, they created a whole new market segment for themselves, replacing tires that don't need to be replaced. And then that tire goes into a landfill. Or that tire goes into a pile called junk, this is what actually happens, and this is why it's kind of a, a double kick in the nuts when you think about it. So that tire goes into a big pile of junk tires. And some guy like my dad used to be, because this is why I know. Like, I knew way more about tires when I was 10 than most people know, will know about when they are 50. Um, my dad ran a used tire shop. This is exactly what he did about junk tires for next to nothing, like a dollar a tire. And then out of that, like 10 to 20% of those are really junk. And you're going to actually have a disposal fee. You're going to have to get rid of them now. You have to pay somebody else to take them. Because now they're sorted junk instead of just junk. 80% will have some value left to them. And you go through them and figure out, okay, this has got you know 10,000 miles left on this. This is a good tire. This looks brand new. It needs a patch, You know what have you. And you, you kind of fix them all up, and you sell them on the used market. And that's what happens to these tires. Or did. I don't know that that happens anymore. I'll bet you, some of you that work in tire shops can tell me if I'm right. I'll bet you what happens now is those tires have to go to disposal. When they take a tire, I bet it cannot go to a used guy like my dad was 35 years ago. You want to bet? I don't know this, but I would take that action right now because that's that's what you do. You lobby. So the tire companies go to Congress and say, hey, look, once these tires have a hole in them like that, and once the repair shop has said, no, we'll do we, we, this needs. We need to get that tire off the street. It's dangerous. You want to protect your constituents, don't you? As they hand them another campaign contribution, yeah. And then you get that law passed, and then you then you close up that market and choke out that guy because he competes with you. He competes with you in a variety of ways. One, he doesn't have the franchise. He doesn't have to have a Goodyear shop or a Firestone shop, does he? He can have Joe's Tires. See, so you got to get rid of him. And that's how this whole system works. Plugs work, and they work damn good. If you don't have a compressor, though, if it's all the way flat, you know, you, you have another problem. So think of some kind of a compressor. If not, one of the buyers I recommend which are the best in the market. Even a cheapo from Walmart. Even if it won't completely fill up your tire. If it'll put enough air in your tire after you plug it to safely get you to the next gas station where you put 50 cents in, then it saves your ass. Have a plug kit in every vehicle. Learn how to use it. Plenty of information on YouTube to show you how. Let's take another one. This one on frogs. Hey, Jack. Shane from Grayson County. A quick question about aquaponics. I was thinking about adding some American bullfrogs into my aquaponics and doing a separate tank, either something like a IBC tote or maybe a, like the 4x4 fiberglass totes that you found. I was curious what your thoughts are, what I've looked online and seen, Looks like I only need about six to eight inches of water. And a larger container would be better. If I could get something like eight by eight, that'd be great. And then uh, just adding as a supplement and be some nice fresh frogs. I'd love to hear what you thought. Thanks. Well, I'll put it this way. You can probably do it. It would probably be interesting. It would probably be fun. And you can probably make it work. And you probably can harvest and reproduce some bullfrogs. However, you're probably looking at something like one or two meals a a year out of this, right? A bullfrog, even a big one, the back legs are really all you take. Don't go real far, you know. Probably need three sets of legs per person to have a good meal. And uh, so if you have a family of four, you need a dozen bullfrogs. You can probably produce two dozen bullfrogs a year. Maybe. I don't really know. So let's talk about some of your challenges. Uh, Number one. Yeah, they could probably get by with about 80 inches of water. You're going to need to have that tied into the rest of your system so that water is constantly being changed for them because uh, they can do a pretty good job of skanking water up. And uh, they really do need some stuff to climb on and get out of the water. They'll live without it, but they're not happy. They're an amphibian that lives primarily in aquatic systems but does come out. Right? And they like, they like to have things like aquatic vegetation and aquatic plants as well in the water with them. If you ever go bullfrogging and you, you know, find a pond that's got bullfrogs in it and you go around at night with like a flashlight listening for moromp, 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 where are the frogs always at? When you find that piece of shoreline that for some reason is completely cleared out and there's no you know, uh, coontail weed or anything like that in there, you almost never see a frog. Or if you do, they're on the shore, they're in the mud, right? It's, it's wherever the lily pads are or the coontail or, or what have you. So you need to think more of an aquatic type system. So like a four foot tall IBC with a half a foot of water or a foot of water in it, and you're using that so the frogs can't escape, I think it's going to be hard to kind of maintain. So this is my experience with bullfrogs so far. I have some bullfrogs, and there's just not a lot of them, which makes me question how valid the reproductive capacity is in these situations, uh, in a 470-gallon, 6-foot-round steel stock tank that's buried in the ground, and it only sticks about 8 inches above the soil line, if that's less than that. Easy for a bullfrog to get over. And we had some flooding one year, and I don't know where they came from, but all of a sudden a couple big bullfrogs showed up started living in there. Uh, I didn't think they were still around, and then last year we did some netting to net out some fish, and we found a whole bunch of young bullfrogs in there, so we stuck them back in. And they seem to have overwintered again, and I don't see them a lot now, but they're in there. And so I think one of the things is is you may, unless you live next to a pond that's bullfrog habitat, in which case I'd say stock it with bullfrogs and harvest them from there and make your life easier, unless you live somewhere where there's a very attractive place for them to go... Odds are, if you put bullfrogs or bullfrog tadpoles into some sort of a tank in your system, if they have all the things that they want and need there, they're probably going to stay. The tadpoles are predated upon by many fish, though, including fish that I like to keep in aquaponics, like catfish and bluegills. So you need, like you said, their own tank. or They can share a tank with koi. That's not a problem. I have koi and goldfish in the tank that they're in right now. I don't see them as something I'm going to harvest. And you may or may not be able to make it work. But I would try to think more about creating a, a bullfrog habitat than a bullfrog tank, even though you'd be using a tank, if that makes sense. So if you look at some of my videos and you see that the tanks that I have in the ground, the metal tanks that are in the ground, that's the type of thing I'm thinking about with stuff for them to climb up onto and, and what have you. And so maybe putting in a, a new sump that you dig in. And if you want to, fence it. That's what I've done with mine to keep the dogs, the ducks, the children out of it. Fence it somehow. And you could fence it with like little picket fence that would be a pretty good bullfrog fence. And, and you know, animals are pretty big on what they see being their limits in a lot of ways, especially lower forms of life like amphibians. And as long as there's not a, a, a serenade of bullfrogs coursing them away, they'd probably stay in something like that. So... I don't know that anybody's ever done it. I know that farming bullfrogs is something that is done, but it's harder than people think. It's generally done with larger ponds in the neighborhood of at least a tenth or two-tenths of an acre. And predation is your number one problem in those situations. So give it a shot. If you have any more clarifying information, let me know. But I don't think... I don't think... I always say don't do it, but I don't think that IBCs are your answer here. Now it would be, it would be quite interesting that you could, you know, fill them halfway up to two feet of water, and have like some rocks and stuff like that. But I think you're you're creating a pet situation, and here's why: they're they're territorial. The males are territorial and competitive, and even at, at frogs in general, once the population goes beyond a certain density, and that's probably why my population hasn't grown. The, 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 the weaker members are either whacked by the Bullfrog Mafia or more likely, like, they're living kind of a, a, a pauper's existence and that first major rain event that gives them kind of an, an impetus, they're off searching for a different place to live. Because you, that population that can maintain Bullfrogs is limited by size. My buddy David keeps uh, dart frogs, poison dart frogs. And he said that, you know, I said, how many do you have in this fairly large tank? It's like an 80-gallon tank. It's like four right now. Uh, He could put more in there. But, you know, he he, he said uh, that you have to be careful on how many that you put in a tank at one time. Because if you put too many, you could basically have Frog Thunderdome going on, right? They'll they'll fight with each other. So um, I, I just think that any kind of small contained system you could keep pet frogs but i just don't think you can really successfully breed frogs what i do think you could do if you had a place for tadpoles to go that was larger is keep maybe breed a couple like maybe a breeding trio and then when they hatch tadpoles you could then relocate those tadpoles or sell those tadpoles cuz they actually sell bullfrog tadpoles tend to sell for quite a bit of money because this is a little bit of a difficult thing to pull off but i don't think it'll work but Those are the parameters I think you're working with if you want to try to figure out how. Hi, Jack. This is James in Memphis, Tennessee. I was just wondering what precautions do you recommend for somebody with the well? Details, I just moved to my 1.6-acre homestead, and I'm now on well water. I've never been on well water before. I have some water stored up. I was doing that before I moved. I plan on buying a Berkey once I build up my cash reserves a little bit for moving. But is there anything else you recommend? Thank you. Okay, so this is, it depends. and It starts out with knowing what the implicit risks are in your area. So let's contrast a couple different things. When I lived in Pennsylvania, I lived um, in a suburban neighborhood that was built in the middle of farm country. And very, very deep uh, soils, not a lot of rock to deal with. Uh, when putting in a well, and therefore permeable. The soils were permeable, water could work its way over time deeper, deeper, deeper down into the water table. And there was still active farming around us. So you could end up with the water ending up being infected with bacteria. And in fact, we did, and we didn't know it, and we weren't that astute on things like that at the time. And nobody got sick, in spite of the fact that we did have... um, Basically, uh, coliform, uh, bacteria, or also known as E. coli, uh, at levels that were considered to be higher than safe in our water. And we didn't find this out until we moved and we, and we had the water tested as part of the pre purchase inspection. And we ended up having to buy a ultraviolet, uh, water purification system. Basically, all the water that came to house ran through this ultraviolet light that immediately just kills the stuff dead. And so that'll take care of anything that's living. But it won't take care of something like a heavy metal or something like that, which we didn't have. But there was a significant risk there that we were unaware of because when we moved in, we had the water tested. It tested completely safe. And what I was told is you can dump stuff down the well and basically shock it, and then it'll test fine for a couple months before the problem comes back. And... I learned this from my real estate agent, who was the only good real estate agent I ever had, and she said, you know, you can do this and then have it retested and it'll pass. And that's probably what somebody did to you. And I said, we're making enough money on this house. I'm not not doing that to somebody. I don't like the fact that somebody did it to me. So we went ahead and paid and had this uh, water purification system put in. But there was a risk there. So when we lived in Arkansas, we lived in a very remote area we lived on top of a mountain our well was over 500 feet deep through rock yeah really tough well to put in the water that came out of that well was pristine you probably could have went in my backyard and dumped toxic waste a foot deep all around it and it'd been a thousand years before if you were lucky any of the water down there would have been contaminated because it was just that type of a system, it was basically an underground reservoir of water that we were tying into. The water down there, they, what I was told by a geologist from the area, is about fifty thousand year old water. The last time it was on the surface fifty thousand years ago, and it takes about—he said it took about another twenty thousand years for the water that was under my house to get down to hot springs and come out of the ground as heated water. So it would take 70,000 years for that water to get from the surface down to hot springs. Risk's pretty low there. So the level of concern and precaution is, is different in those two situations, is it not? Now I live in a, in a you know, former agricultural area. Uh, surrounded by people and all kinds of problems, but I also have water that's well down deep in the limestone. It's a little more difficult, again, for stuff to get down. It takes a long time for water to get down to that aquifer. But it's still a lot more risky than where I was in Arkansas and somewhat less risky than where I was in Pennsylvania. So I say that so that you'll temper whatever I'm going to say with the reality of where you are. Either what I'm going to say is really, really important or kind of important or maybe not even that important at all. My philosophy with this is, and ironically, I was going to cover this Monday, uh, I got an article. If I can find the article in my follow-up folder uh, today before I get the show out, I'll put a link to it. It came from uh, John Amore Park, who sends me all kinds of great stuff. And it was basically, that was the takeaway from it. Test your own water and own a filter. So I believe that if you are on a well that it makes damn good sense for at least once a year to pay for a water test because it's not expensive. It's not expensive at all. Send your water away and have it tested at least once a year. If you bought a new home that's on a well that passed, I would say 90 days after you move in, have the water tested again to make sure that somebody didn't pull some shit like they did to me. And then I do think having a filter is a good idea. I understand you say you're kind of saving up to buy a Berkey, and I don't think you should go on the Hawk to buy a Berkey. <sighs> if it was me, for my drinking water that I'm not cooking with, and I'll save some thoughts on that for the next question, because it actually ties into this one pretty nicely, um, I would go out and buy something like a Brita. That is going to cost you more money per gallon over two years. There, there's there's no doubt about it, or three, or four. Then it gets to be ridiculous how much more it costs you. But to save up to buy the Berkey in the interim, I would see that as a valid interim solution. If you feel that the area you live in has risk. If it's like my place in Arkansas, I might say don't even worry about it. It's It's up to you. But, you know, it is your health that you're dealing with. And I would say at least the first time you have it tested, don't just have it tested for things like coliform and stuff like that. Have it tested for anything. Anything and everything you can test for that's possible. Cadmium, et cetera. Just whatever is possible in your area that you can get a test for, have it tested for that the first time. And then, you know, then I would say you're really worried about things that can become introduced into the environment based on where you live and, and what's there. Uh, So I'll kind of leave it there because this next question kind of ties in with some of the the filter practices. But if it was me, if I lived where I live right now and I didn't own a Berkey and I couldn't afford one, I would buy something akin to or like a Brita as a stopgap for at least the water that we use without cooking. And I wouldn't really worry about the water we use with cooking. And I would pay to have a test done. Like I said, if you had the water tested by a company as part of your pre-purchase, if this is a due purchase, wait 60, 90 days before you test it. But uh, after my experience with that and being told how that happened to me, I would worry about it happening to you. On the other side of it, that's another option you have is one of the UV uh, purification systems. And if you, so if I lived in an area that was heavy cattle and permeable soils, where that stuff can easily get in or there was risk of uh, sewage from my neighbors or something getting in uh, and and adding something like E. coli to my well, whether it tested positive or not, I would have one of those filtration systems. And I would see that in that situation as superior to reverse osmosis, Berkey, everything. Because it's 100% all the time instantly and it's seamless once it's installed. And there's really not a lot that can go wrong. So... Keep that in mind as I take the next question. Hey, Jack. uh, Berkey or RO? Here's why I asked that. It's time to upgrade our filtration system for potable. My kitchen is kind of small. Countertop space is at a premium, and I have a very large family, 11 of us total. In the past, countertop systems have filtered very, very slowly. With an RO, maybe a little more maintenance, but it's in line and it always has that water supply connected and you could upgrade the pressure tanks and etc. Um, maybe you got some thoughts I ain't thought of. Thanks. Okay, so I'm going to give you some different options here. Um, the I, And I just talked about the UV purification system. So one of the reasons that I think that is superior to something like a Berkey for a well that may have a real risk of contamination with some sort of bacterium is that it's going to work, and it's going to avoid an extra step that somebody may not take because they don't feel like it today. So you have a family, you got kids and all... That's eh, water out of the sink. It has to be safe. I know dad says put in a filter, but fills up the glass, drinks it. If that happens to be the day that there's a spike in it, next thing you've got a sick kid, you're in the ER. It's possible. It's not highly probable. Very few people get sick from their faucet um, on a well. Okay. Usually, the majority of people that we hear about getting sick are people that are getting sick because they're on municipal water which I'm not sure which one you're on. I don't think you really mentioned that. but you know. And then something went wrong because you have centralized treatment, therefore centralized contamination. Okay. Um, but it just does it by itself. So in your situation with your kids and all, reverse osmosis may be a better choice for you than a Berkey. Now, people think, well, Jack's had Berkey guy as a sponsor forever, uh, almost since he started the show, so he's going to come down on the Berkey. No, I'm going to come down on what works best for the person, uh, so you have limited counter space. I understand that. Berkeys are pretty, but they do take up space. And there's just no doubt about that, that they take up space. Um, if you, you do that, then you turn the water on, the water comes out, it's, it's safe, and it's filtered, and it tastes good. And that may be a better solution for you in this scenario. How to make the Berkey work, though, I want to give you, because this is what we did when my son was home, and we had municipal water, and it was important to me that I was filtering water. We set the Berkey up. We do it here, too. We set the Berkey up basically in the laundry room, made a stand for it, put it on stand. And I went out and bought a ton of the cheapo stainless steel water bottles with a screw on top so you get it like Walmart. Bought like a dozen or so of them. And we would fill them up from the filter, put them in the uh, refrigerator. When they were empty, rinsed them out with hot water, filled it up, put it back in the refrigerator over and over again. But we had a rule, and this is a rule that I see as one of my tenets of life, not just for water filters but for everything you got to give before you take. I said it so much my wife was ready to pound a hole in the wall because I would always remind her and Matthew every time they went to to fill up the water uh, filter, filter bottles, you got to give before you can take. So if you fill up that water bottle, you know exactly how much you're going to take. So what you do is you, when you go to the sink and you rinse the bottle out to make sure there's no cross-contamination, then you switch the water over to the cold side, you fill the bottle up. You go over to the Berkey, you take the lid off, you dump the bottle in, You put the lid back on it, and you go down the bottom and you pull the fountain thingy, And you fill the bottle up, you cap it, and you take it away and drink it at room temperature, you stick it back in the refrigerator. And then there's always a dozen or a dozen and a half bottles of water in the refrigerator. They're always ready to go if you need to take one with you. All you got to do is when you come home, open the bottle, rinse it out with hot water, fill it up with cool water, pour it in the Berkey, fill it back up, and put the lid back on. Now, for me, this was not a chore. For my wife, At times, she just didn't feel like it, but overall, she did a pretty good job with it. And I told her, I said, look, if you just leave the bottle sitting there in the sink, I'll take care of it. If you don't feel like it, don't half-ass it. Just leave the bottle there, and I'll do it. For my son, you know, we'd end up with 20 bottles in the sink and none in the refrigerator, or a bunch of them in his car, or with his friends or stuff as he got older, or all over the house. So this may or may not work, depending on how tight a ship you run. And I ran a pretty tight ship, and it still fell apart at times. So... In your situation, the reverse osmosis is probably the most trouble-free thing you can do. Long-term, the most cost-effective thing you can do is a system with a Berkey like I just described. If you can make the family participate in that, and if you can find a good place for your Berkey to go. And I think like the smartest thing you can do when you own a Berkey is spend some time in your little shop and build yourself a nice stand for it. And then find a place that it goes, because I don't like them on a countertop. They do take, countertop space is sacred. So if we can find a nice place for it to go and you can make that system work, especially if you're a person like me that keeps more than one refrigerator and you have one that's like mostly water and beer and stuff, it's, it's perfect. As long as you can get them on board with, you gotta give before you take. And again, folks, just make that a thing in your life. That's why it was such an obvious thing to me because like, it wasn't about solving that problem. It was just a philosophy. Wh- whenever you're going to do anything and it, you you stand to gain from it, just understand you got to give first. Back to water, man. You prime the pump. So if you want good shit, you do good shit. You do bad shit, you're going to get it because that's the other side of it. Not only do you have to give before you take, but you're going to get what you give. That's fundamental to life. It's a good place to... Finish up. So, real quick, if you like this show and the work that we do, remember you can always support us by doing your online shopping at com. You go to com. you'll see all of the cool stuff that I've ever reviewed. And remember, if you see it there, I own it, I bought it, and if I need it again, I'll buy it again or I wouldn't recommend it. Today's item of the day is homemade liquors and infused spirits by Andrew Slosh. So you're going to get sloshed with the slosh book, guys. Uh, I think it's actually slosh is how you say his name, but I'm going to say slosh because it just sounds better, uh, going with liquor. So this book basically tells you how to make just about any kind of expensive liquor that you could buy. When I say liquor, I mean you know stuff like Grand Marnier, that type of thing, or Chambord, uh, Pierre William, you know, stuff like that. So stuff that's more of a, a cordial. A liqueur, not liquor, right? So a liqueur. Um, and it's really a fun thing to do. If you are a person that makes fuel that you accidentally drink, uh you end up with a lot of basically vodka or Everclear, depending on how exactly you distill it. And then you have a lot of options. You can make a true corn whiskey fuel, but you can also make, you know, some more of a vodka fuel. You can make your own gin. You can do all kinds of stuff with it. But, you know, it's fun to make fuel and, you know, Maybe you don't make fuel, so you go down to the liquor store and buy some less expensive vodka like a Taka or something like that. or uh, Even Absolute's not really a very expensive vodka. It's much better than Taka. And you can make all this different cool stuff. You can learn how to do it. I'll give you one word of caution with it. This book's 272 pages. And there is basically two main methods that they give you on how to make these different recipes. There's the muddle with sugar and alcohol method, and the muddle with alcohol and add sugar at the end method. Okay, that's really the two ways. There's some other little bitty some tricks and you know stuff in there, but in general, every recipe is either going to use we're going to take the fruit, we're going to muddle it with sugar, we're going to add alcohol and strain it off, or we're going to muddle the fruit with the alcohol and then strain off the fruit and add sugar. Uh, in the form of pure sugar, simple syrup, whatever, but it's the same thing over and over again. So half of every recipe is something you've read a hundred times by year at the end of the book. If you were to take that out and it would just say, in this instance, use these ingredients in the muddle with sugar and alcohol method, the book would probably be about 150 to 170 pages. There's still plenty of information and I think some people just like thick books, but I think that was probably done to satisfy a publisher's requirement. So just so you'll know that repetition's there, but the recipes are great. It's awesome. They even teach you how to make like brown syrups, caramelized syrups, cream syrups, and you can make then anything that you would find in a liquor store for pennies on the liter, okay? Um, Really great book. Also, it was stupid cheap on Kindle. So I bought the Kindle edition, and then I looked at it and said, this is a good book. And I'm glad to have it. And I'm going to go ahead and buy the hard copy. I actually don't like hard copy books unless, like, I like somebody came here once and God, I'm sorry, I can't remember who you were, brought me um, a first edition um, signed copy uh, of Death in the Long Grass by Peter Capstick. Okay, that's a treasure. That's a treasure. But when it comes to like a book, I'm just going to read and look at or whatever. I'm not big on hard copy books anymore. I have Thomas Jefferson's Garden Book in hard copy, but I did a book, Purge, about two and a half years ago. Uh, I was just realized like I have all this space taken up by these books that I'm not going to read again, and especially anything I could get on electronic copy. It's like, just get rid of it. And uh, so I generally don't like hard copy books. Certain books, like cookbooks, I like a hard copy. And when I when I looked at the Kindle on this, I'm like, I can do everything with it, but... And so this is one that I, I actually, you know, prefer the hard copy. But it's up to you. The Kindle edition is just dumb cheap. I mean, just stupid effing cheap. So if nothing else, pick it up on Kindle. You guys that are on Kindle Unlimited, man, you know, go by, take a look at the review, and uh, pick it up. Take a look at it. It's free if you're on Kindle Unlimited, I think, think that's the case with this book you can check it out Um, but even if it's not it's it's like I said it's just stupid cheap it's like eight bucks on Kindle so if you made one seven dollar bottle of vodka with one recipe into it into the equivalent of a twenty five dollar bottle of uh, of Chambord actually Chambord is more like thirty two bucks then you've paid for it twice that's why I say it's stupid cheap But remember, you can always support us How online shopping at tspaz.com. Next up, I want to remind you the other way you can support us is by joining the member support brigade. If you join the MSB... Uh, you will get discounts on a lot of really great stuff and help support this show at about eighteen point cents eighteen point three cents an episode. You can learn more just by going to the survivalpodcast.com dot com and clicking on members there and uh, love to have your support if we don 't already have it. Thank you to everybody that 's ever been a member uh, in the past or currently are a member without your support through the member support brigade there 's no way I could do this show. Uh, I cannot sell enough advertising to do this show the way that I want to do it and stay completely pure in my integrity. Uh, The sponsors I have that I've had for years, I have them for years because I don't charge them much money. And I don't charge them much money because I love them. And I I implicitly trust them with you and with your business and with my recommendation. And they're small business people, and I can reach out and talk to them. If I was going to try to make this a success through commercials uh, and, and have the good living that I do... I would have to take big corporate brands and basically do what they say. And I built this show from the very beginning not to do that, and thank you to all of you who have helped me do that. That brings us to our song of the day today. Song of the day today is Good Die Young. The Good Die Young by, not Billy Joel, the Scorpions. Um, This is a much more somber song using that old phrase of the Good Die Young. There's a country song that's pretty upbeat that uses that phrase too. This one's about war. This is, there's no way around it. This song's about warfare. It even talks about basically you can tell it's an IED going off and, and taking this guy out. That's you know one of the, the people in this song. And there's there's a line in this song that's really interesting if you truly examine it. And here's what it says it says, You remember that your father said, Stay out of trouble, son. If you're true to yourself, You'll be working like a dog, raise a family, and life will be all right. But now it's written in the stars if you'll make it out alive. It's up to fate now. You're in combat theater. We're in the uniform of your country. Fighting a war you probably don't want anything to do with. It's up to fate whether you'll survive. Your father said stay out of trouble, be true to yourself, and work hard. And you'll be fine. But now you're not. But the name of the song is The Good Die Young, not the Bad Die Young. So the poignance of that stanza is because this man is good. Because on one level he tried to stay out of trouble. People don't generally join the military looking for trouble. And if you get into enough trouble, they don't let you join. And if you cause trouble, they throw you out. So it's not really a troublemaker thing, right? Be true to yourself. Now, you know that I am a fairly anti-war person at this point in my life. And I'm a veteran. And I'm proud of my service. And I don't have any um, guilt for having served. I'm very proud of my service. Uh, but I I would prefer that our nation stay out of foreign entanglements and foreign wars. And I think we could if we just wanted to. But I don't think that's what the people in power want. But I'll tell you that the people that go, they believe in what they're doing or they wouldn't go. So stay true to yourself, son. So he did. And work hard. That's You'll be working like a dog. Well, tell you what. You do work hard in the military. Work long hours for a little pay. Raise a family. Well, I don't know how they do it, because I I wouldn't have done it, but many soldiers raise a family while they're serving. And life will be all right. But now, it's written in the stars, if you'll make it out alive. It's a very hit-you-between-the-eyes song. I believe it was released in 2010. And in 2010, this, this modern state of war that our country is in had been going on for eight years plus, since really September 11th, 2001. This is, I think, October of that year was when we actually began the real campaign in Afghanistan. It had been going on almost, at that point, longer than almost any conflict the United States has ever been in. Here we sit, almost nine years later, Closer to New Year's right now than we are to last New Year's, right? We talked about that this week. And we're still in it. And we're still entangled in it. And the good are still dying young. Now, I have another little thought on this. The statement, the good die young, has always been a hard one for me because I've lost quite a few friends I'm not a guy that has a lot of friends. When I say friends here, I don't mean people I know and like. I mean people that I I take into my life as extended family. People that if they call me, I will pick up the phone every single time. If they say they need me, I will be there every single time. That list is short. And I've had, for as short as that list is, I've had way too many people that were on it leave us early. And it does seem like sometimes that it's the the good that always die young. But then I know a lot of good people that grew to be very old men and led amazing lives and were good men right up to the end in their late 80s, 90s even. So not all the good die young. And sometimes it seems like the miserable masters will just never go away. Plenty of those die young as well. So why do we feel that the good die young? Because we actually miss them when they're gone. Because we actually see their loss as tragic. Because it actually hurts us when the good die. So when the good die young, we notice. And when the scum die young, we don't. Now here's the important thing in being fully human. A lot of times the people that we don't notice, that we don't think were good, they were somebody's good that died young. Try to remember that. Every person has a story. Every person, save for a few, have people that love them and care about them. And the ones that don't, how sad is that? And there are people that I think the world would be better off without, but I think they are the distinct minority. And remember, the good do die young. And the reason we notice is because they're missed. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. If you wake up, watch the world go round. If you shiver, feeling upside down. Your heart is beating fast, pumping blood to your head. Another day to fight. If you have a prayer on your lips under the desert sun, and the Lord is gone. Remember that your father said, stay out of trouble, son, and be true to yourself. You'll be working like a dog, raise a family. Life will be alright. But now it's written in the stars if you make it out alive.